scriptures this morning? Jesus, we thank you that whenever we're gathered together, you promise to be with us. So 2,000 years after you walked this earth, we get together in this elementary school to worship you, and we know and we claim that your presence is among us, God. And we're grateful for the presence of your spirit. We know we need to hear from you. We need to be led by you. You're the reason we came. And so we pray that you open our hearts and our minds, our ears, to hear what you might want to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome. Today is the first Sunday of Lent, and we're going to be celebrating over the next few Sundays as we lead up to Easter uh, in some various ways. But uh, today's sermon is a little intense as I got into it, and so I want to start with kind of a stupid story. Does that sound okay to you? Okay? All right. So I've been remodeling my basement bathroom for nine years. Does anyone else have a long-term remodel project going at their house? Yeah, a couple of you. Okay. We've owned our house about nine years. This basement bathroom I have, some of you have been to my house, it's about, I don't know the square footage exactly, but I think it's like 10 square feet, okay? It's like four feet by two feet. That's what it feels like to me. I can barely turn around in this bathroom. That's how small it is, okay? So I, I took it apart. I didn't have any idea what I'm doing, but I watched some HGTV, so I felt like I was ready. I took down the walls. I started redoing floors and stuff. I got some neighbors to help me. Some of you came over and helped me, and I've slowly been rebuilding this bathroom. But I got to a certain point where the bathroom was functional, but not finished. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's one of the... There are many things that are wrong with this bathroom, many things. I don't have all the time to tell you all the things. But here's one, here's an image of one of the things that's wrong with my bathroom, okay? So one thing I didn't know is that you have to take the electrical outlets. When you put them in the wall, you have to make sure they stick out a little bit so that when the sheetrock goes on, they're still out with the sheetrock. I didn't know that. So they're all buried in the wall right now. I found a way to bring them out recently because I'm working on this. I'm in year nine, right? Okay. So I got this one out. I had a cover on that one on the right and everything was working good. And I'm telling you for like a week, I was like, I feel pretty solid about this bathroom. There's still some other things, but there's not giant holes in the wall with like wires hanging out. That's pretty solid. Okay. I'm feeling good. One of the kids left the, there's a heater on the fan. They left the heater on for who knows how long. It was like a thousand degrees in there. And Carissa went in and noticed that the heater was still on and hit that button, the bottom one on the right there, on the right side one, the bottom. She hit it, and it sparked. And some, some sparks shot out of the thing, and it blew the fuse, shut the TV off, all kinds of stuff went on downstairs. And she came out, and she said, I think maybe, maybe that wasn't wired exactly correctly. <laughs> It's not, I mean, it, this isn't, it's not like an OCD thing for me, but like there's not every, every day pretty much I think about the things that are wrong in this little bathroom. Because I go down there and I take a shower and I go, like on the left there, you didn't even paint the trim, the wall doesn't go all the way over to the trim. It looks terrible, right? The, the door is brown, everything else is blue. It needs some work. I think about it almost every day. I think about the things that are wrong in this bathroom. And over nine years though, I've learned to live with the wrong things in the bathroom. It works. I can do it. You know, I can take a shower. 
maybe my wife will get electrocuted, but the chances seem low, 10% or so. Some things are wrong, but I've learned to live with it. And as we start this series that's trying to help us focus as we look towards Easter, what it was that Jesus actually accomplished on the cross, here's something I, I think I felt this week as I was writing the sermon. It's that when I think about sin and I think about the things that are wrong in the world, sometimes, for some of us, we know there's some things wrong in the world, we know there's some things wrong in our lives, but we've just kind of gotten used to them being there. And we've sort of learned to live with it. And I think one of the most important messages of the cross is that God does not intend for us to live with sin affecting our lives together. That's not the way it's designed to work. And what Jesus has done for us on the cross is given us freedom and forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption so that we don't have to live with all the wrong things forever and ever, right? So keep that image in your mind as we go forward. I know that there are much more meaningful problems than this one. Take that picture down, will you please? There are much more meaningful problems but sometimes the everyday moments of our lives help us to understand the bigger, more deeper things. So I hope that that goofy life light switch will do that for you as we go forward. Try to imagine with me what it must be like for God, who created the world and created it perfectly so that all of us would have a place to live and thrive and be ourselves and do work and find meaning. To see things happen like have happened again in our country this last week and have happened all over the world almost every day, to see the brokenness and the many things that are wrong, can you imagine what it must be like for the designer to see all that brokenness every, every minute of every day? Can you imagine what it's like for God to feel the brokenness in our world, knowing that that's nothing like what God intended for us to experience when he created us. So today is the first Sunday of Lent, and if you don't know what Lent is, if you didn't grow up celebrating Lent, it's the season of the Christian year that focuses on simple living, on prayer, and on fasting in order to grow closer to God in anticipation of Easter. And it starts on Ash Wednesday, which was this last Wednesday, and there's 40 days leading up to Easter excluding the Sundays, and all the Sundays are like little Easter's, so if you go home and try to count out the days, you can't include the Sundays. It's 40 days from Ash Wednesday to Easter without the Sundays. And this Lenten season, what we're going to do is ask the question, what is it that Jesus accomplished on the cross? How does Jesus make the wrong things right on the cross over the next few weeks? The cross is the central image of Christian faith. Without the cross and without the resurrection, there is no Christian faith. The cross defines in many ways who God is and what God has accomplished for us and what God's relationship to us is like. But to understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross, the wrong things that Jesus made right, you first have to understand what is wrong. What is the problem? And so I want to talk a little bit about the problem. The easiest way to label the problem in biblical language is sin. And when I say the word sin, an image or an idea comes up in all of your minds, right? You're all thinking about something. And if we had time to sit down with each other and ask you 
what, it, what image or story or experience comes to your mind when you hear the word sin, we'd have a wide range of responses. And the Bible uses all kinds of different language to try to help us understand what sin is. Here are some of the ways, some of the language the Bible uses to describe sin. They'll be on the screen for you. Things like alienation, alienation from God, alienation from each other. Things like defiance, words like rejection. The, uh, there's a metaphor of adultery that's used to describe sin. Injustice, unfaithfulness, oppression, darkness, wickedness, and idolatry. That's just a few. There are, there are others in Scripture. And the reason that Scripture needs to use all of these different words to describe sin is that sin is an incredibly broad term. It means a lot of things, not just one thing. And in its broadness, it's trying to communicate to us all the things that are wrong about the life that we're all living in the place that God created for us to be. It's distortion in at least four directions, okay? There's distortion in our relationship with God. There's distortion in the way that we relate to ourselves, our self-image. There's distortion in the way that we relate to each other. There's distortion in the way that we relate to the world. Call it brokenness. Call it um, troubled relationship. Call it sin. Call it mistakes. All sorts of language is needed because it's a huge, massive problem that has existed since the time of Adam and Eve. The problem of sin, here's another way to think about this, the problem of sin, the way that Scripture describes it, here are a number of ways in which this Scripture describes the various problem. It's all one problem, but it has different, different angles, different ways of thinking about it, okay? One is that God is holy and can't ignore human sin. God is perfect, God is holy, God is other than us, and can't ignore the mistakes and the brokenness that exist in our lives. People are addicted or enslaved or oppressed by sin, like they can't get away from sin, even if they wanted to. People are alienated from God. Some people feel so far away from God or that God doesn't even exist that that relationship is damaged and broken. God's creation, the, the earth, the world that we live in is distorted and broken. People don't know how to live God's way of life. Some folks might say, I would love to live the way God wants me to live. I don't even know what that's like. That's one of the effects of sin in the world. The world is full of injustice. There are lots of oppressed people. There are things that are not the way that God wants them to be. And that is perpetuated all over the globe. We all have a story or an image in our mind that defines sin for us. And I want you to be able to try to put your finger on the one that makes, that comes to your mind the most easily. So because of the way that I grew up in the church tradition that I grew up, sin was mostly defined morally. Do you know what I mean by that? Sin was mostly defined by individual moral mistakes that I made or that I would make, right? I lied to somebody or I stole something or I, I used God's name in vain or I treated somebody unfairly or cheated or something, right? There were moral mistakes that I made, and that was my primary story and my primary image, and probably the, 
the default definition of sin that I go to. Is anybody else in that category? Don't raise your hand if you don't want to. For others of us, maybe sin feels more corporate. It's bigger than that, right? It's like things like um, sexual slavery, racism, big, big problems that we have in the world, in the globe, poverty, uh, institutional sin, systematic sin that gets into our systems. It's not just one person making choices. It's systems that perpetuate nonsense on people, brokenness, make it worse, make it harder for people to get free from the effects of sin. For some of you, those corporate understandings of sin, or maybe the story or the image that comes to your mind when you hear the words. For some of you, maybe it's social, that the way in which people groups relate to each other is the thing that comes to mind the most, or treat each other poorly, or discriminate against one another. Maybe for some of you, it's personal. A sin is mostly about you and God and your relationship to God. What I'm trying to do for you this morning is just say, yes, it's all those things, right? And I just, I am so fatigued as a teacher. I'm so fatigued of Christians trying to make arguments about us having to hold one of these things above and against the other one. Why in the world would we not say, it's quite obvious in Scripture that sin covers all of those things? Do I have a role to play in the brokenness in the world? Is it hard for any one of us to sit here this morning and be able to say, I can think of one sinful thing in my life? We can do that, right? Can we also look at the world and look at the news and look at the big picture and go, clearly there's some systemic problems here. Clearly there's some big picture issues that we're going to have to deal with, that it isn't just one bad person or a group of bad people. There's some brokenness in the whole setup, yeah? Sin is global. It's also local. It's communal and it's personal. And it deceives us if we think it's only one of those things. Thank you. It deceives us because it makes us choose and reject or marginalize people who feel like they've experienced in one of the images I just gave you over against the other, and then we're arguing about which one's better or more accurate instead of actually dealing with the problem itself, yes? Sin is a massive problem with a broad definition. It includes distortion in four directions, again, with God, with each other, with ourselves, and with the world. Now, God has a solution to the problem of sin. Christians have a particular understanding of how God deals with sin in the world, in our lives, in systems, and individually. And it is accomplished through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, through the cross, to Easter Sunday morning with the resurrection. God's solution to the problem of sin is the cross, put simply. All right, here's Mark chapter 10. Jesus, in his own words, I was thinking this week, how did Jesus understand what Jesus was accomplishing on the cross, okay? We're trying to answer the question, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? How did Jesus understand what Jesus was accomplishing on the cross? Here's here's him in his own words. His guys, these young guys, are arguing about who the greatest is. They want to ask Jesus to put them at the right hand and the left hand. They want to be in power. They want to be judges. They want to be honored by Jesus. So they're asking him all kinds of ridiculous things that they don't understand. 
and then the friends find out about it. They're all arguing. Here's what the scripture says. It says, when the ten heard about this, meaning the ten disciples that were mad at the two who wanted to sit at the right and the left, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus calls them all together and says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers or leaders of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over the people they're ruling. But that's not to be so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be the slave or the servant of everyone else. For even the Son of Man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We'll just leave that scripture, that last part up there for a second. Jesus is saying to these disciples who are trying to figure out how to become big shots in the kingdom of heaven, here, first of all, you don't understand leadership. If you want to be a leader, you got to serve everybody else. And you don't understand what I'm doing either because I didn't come here to make people serve me and to exercise my authority over them. I came to give up my life as a ransom. As a rescue. You know what the word ransom means? As a rescue for people who are in captivity, who are being held down, oppressed, enslaved. To rescue them out of that slavery and give my life in exchange for their life. Make sense? To give my life as a ransom. That's what I'm doing here. I'm going to accomplish on the cross by ransoming the people who trust me and believe in me and put their faith in me. I'm going to rescue them out of the situation that they are in, being oppressed by sin. Jesus gives up his life for many, and he's using this metaphor of Passover in this moment, because they're getting together, getting ready to celebrate the Passover. And in the story of the Passover, for those of you who know it, in the story of the Passover, the people of Israel are being rescued or ransomed by God out of Egypt, where they've been enslaved for 400 years, And on the night that they're going to escape, God tells them to sacrifice a a lamb, multiple lambs, and put the blood of the lambs over their door frames so that they will be protected and identified as God's people. And so when Jesus says, I've come to be a ransom for for, uh, many, that's the image that they would have had in their head. He is ransoming us and protecting us and putting his own blood above our dorm frame so that God will see us as protected and forgiven and one of God's family. That's what he's saying he's doing. In Romans chapter 5 and 6, or chapter 5, verse 6, it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in our sin, while we were still suffering the effects of our own sin, the sin of of other people, and the sin of the systems, Jesus goes and dies and gives up his life as a ransom for our life. God defines love, Romans 5 says. He turns power and authority and rescue all on its head. When Jesus dies on the cross, 
He's confronting systemic sin, corporate sin, personal sin. He's addressing all the different forms of sin by giving up his own life and asking us to believe in him and trust him and to receive freedom and forgiveness from the effects of sin in our lives. That's what he's doing. So scripture uses multiple metaphors to describe what is happening on the cross. And it uses different metaphors because it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, for us to wrap our human brains around everything that was actually taking place in this moment, right? You're not going to get it, bottom line. We're not going to understand all of the physical and metaphysical realities that are taking place when Jesus gives up his life and then takes it back up again. We're not going to totally get it. So the Bible uses all kinds of metaphors. And sometimes in Scripture it even says, because you're a human and you're a little dense, here's a metaphor for you so that you can understand this, right? It uses multiple metaphors so that we can look at it from a whole bunch of different angles. But what we do as Christians is we grab one of the metaphors and try to make it the only metaphor, which again, baffles me. I have no idea. There's no scriptural reason for that. It doesn't make, as it help us. I don't know why we're doing that. Why don't we just look at all the metaphors? This is what we're going to do over the next few Sundays. Why don't we look at all the metaphors and say, how does this metaphor help us understand exactly what Jesus is accomplishing on the cross? One of the, meta, one of the categories of metaphor for atonement in scripture are things like reconciliation, ransom, substitution, justification, redemption, sacrifice, light, justice. Again, you can hear my point before I say it out loud. It's all of those things. Why would Scripture use all of the metaphors unless it was intending to affirm that what Jesus accomplishes on the cross is reconciliation and ransom and substitution and justification and redemption and sacrifice and light and justice and on and on and on and on and on and on. And so we had more words. We need more words, right? Not less words. Even though the Bible uses different metaphors, all of the metaphors point to the cross as God's solution to the massive problem of sin. So here's a couple of little pieces that I hope will help you with this. And one of the reasons I'm doing this kind of overview is so that you can place the rest of these sermons as they go along with different speakers. But it's also really important because... We've noticed as a pastoral team in this church that understanding what really happened on the cross is one of the things that a lot of you are wrestling with. And this happens often if you've grown up with a particular way of thinking about things or you're new to Christian faith at all, and you suddenly find out there are other ways to view certain essential parts of the Christian faith. And that may be really encouraging to you, like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that other people looked at this a little bit differently. That's really a helpful way for me to also understand the cross. Or it's absolutely terrifying because you thought that the one metaphor that you knew or the one way that you were taught it was the primary way and the new understanding of this new to you is threatening and scary. And that's normal. So one of our jobs as this church, one of the things I love about this church is that we try to dig into these things and get a big, broad understanding of all the things Scripture says about it and learn from multiple traditions in the Christian faith and say, let's try to understand the whole of it if we can. It's a little scary and it's a little challenging and it's a lot harder than just learning one of them, but that's what we love to do at Mill City Church and it makes our conversations in our faith 
deeper. So I hope that's what this series will do for you. When you think about a metaphor for atonement, which is the theological word for what Jesus accomplished on the cross, uh, Scott McKnight says this. It might be helpful to you. A metaphor of atonement is a set of lenses, like lenses you put on your face. A set of lenses through which we describe God's acts of resolving sin and of bringing humans back home in their relationship with God, with self, with others, and with the world. These scriptural metaphors help us put different lenses on to see the relational aspects of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The, uh, the penal, the, judging, the judgment aspects of what Jesus accomplishes on the cross, the social aspects, the corporate aspects, all the different ways in which Jesus is setting us free from sin on the cross. McKnight uses this um, golfing metaphor, and I, I apologize to those of you who love golf. I'm not, a, I'm not a golf guy. I don't like golf. It seems hard, and, and you have to walk a long ways, and the ball is small. I don't understand, but you can tell me, you can tell me later. But he used this golfing metaphor to say, uh, you know, some people golf with one club. How many of you have, the, you know that club that looks real weird and people try to hit every shot with it? Golfers, anybody? You've not seen this? They exist. I've seen one. If you ask a golfer, you know, which is your favorite club, McKnight says, I can't tell you my favorite club until I tell you what shot I'm trying to hit. If I'm in the sand trap, I want my sand wedge. If I'm on the putting green, I want my putter. If I'm on the driving, if I'm driving, what's the thing you call where you start the driving? The tee box. Thanks, Trev. I want my driver. And he uses this analogy, uh, even if you're not a golfer, you can understand it, that the, the best metaphor for understanding what Jesus accomplishes on the cross, which wrong is being made right, depends upon which aspect of the problem you're talking about. If you're talking about your personal need to be forgiven and deal with the guilt that you feel for the wrong that you've done in your life, then you need a justification meta- metaphor that Jesus justifies you and forgives you and sets you free from that guilt and from that sin. If you're talking about a corporate situation about sin that has to do with racism or something big like that, then we need a a freedom metaphor, right? We need a victory metaphor. We need a victory over evil understanding of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. If you're an artist, maybe, this is my attempt to not be like uh, use a white guy golfing metaphor, okay? If you're an artist, maybe you're in your drawing something, you, you have a whole set of pencils. When we were working on this, I was sitting at Mojo Coffee Shop in Northeast Minneapolis, and, and in one section of the coffee shop, they have like all these pencils that artists use to draw things sometimes when they're in there. And I was thinking, yeah, so you have like 36 pencils here, and you're trying to capture something, and you let your creativity help you choose the right pencil and the right color for the moment. That's what Scripture's doing. There's one problem, sin. There's one solution, Jesus on the cross but we color it all kinds of different ways. We see it from all sorts of different angles. We experience it in all sorts of different ways. So here are the solutions for sin that Jesus offers to us on the cross. If you think of the problems of sin and the solutions for sin, these are some of the things that Jesus accomplishes for us on the cross. Jesus takes our punishment and gives us his righteousness. Jesus was perfect, we're not. But Jesus gives us his perfection so that we can live in God's presence. 
Jesus frees us from sin. We no longer have to be enslaved or oppressed by sin. Jesus reconciles us relationally to God. Jesus makes it possible for us to have a personal relationship with God. Jesus restores and recreates the world that we're living in. He's doing it now, and he will finish the job in the end. Jesus shows us how to give up our lives for other people. Jesus establishes justice in the kingdom of God. These are all things that Jesus accomplishes, and the way we understand it has to be in line with the part of the problem we're dealing with in the moment or in the conversation. Now, if all of this seems really confusing to you, here's C.S. Lewis to straighten it out for you, okay? I really loved the C.S. Lewis quote. Here's what he says. We are told that Christ was killed for us, that his death has washed out our sins, and that by dying, he disabled death itself. That is the formula. That is Christianity. That is what has to be believed. Any theories we build up as to how Christ's death did this are, in my view, quite secondary. Mere plans or diagrams to be left alone if they do not help us. And even if they do help us, not to be confused with the thing itself. What Lewis was trying to say is, Jesus conquered sin and death on the cross and offered us the opportunity to be part of that victory through forgiveness, through faith in Christ. We're not going to understand how it all worked out totally. We have a lot of real smart people for thousands of years who are trying to describe it. We're going to learn, we're going to do our best to learn about it because it helps us to grow in our faith and our relationship with God. But in the end, the problem of sin was conquered, defeated by what Jesus did for us on the cross. And that's the essence of Christianity. So what's left is our response. It's fine to know all the things that I just said, and we'll get into more detail of it as we go on in the series. But what's really at stake here is whether or not we as individuals and as a group are responding to the invitation that Jesus is giving to us. Sin is a reality in our world, right? We need to do something about it. Lots of people have different perspectives on what we should do about the problems globally, locally, personally that we're facing. The Bible calls them sin. Jesus has a specific invitation for us. Jesus' invitation is, is um, extended to us in Scripture in a bunch of ways. He says things like, come follow me. He says things like, when you find the kingdom that I'm telling you about, enter into it. Do everything you can to enter into it. He says, believe in me and you will have eternal life. There's lots of language that all point to the same thing, which is um, at its core, in your most intimate moment, where you, you know you, right? Where you know what's happening in your own heart, your own experience. Have you come to the place where you believe the good news that Jesus Christ is the way to overcome sin in the world, sin in your life, to receive personal forgiveness for the things that you've done wrong, and to be part of God's project of fixing the things that are wrong in the world? That's the distinctly Christian way to respond to the problem of sin. And Jesus makes this unbelievable, it is almost unbelievable 
the graciousness of God to offer God's self for us before we even knew we needed it and without any prerequisite to say, if you are willing to trust me, if you are willing to believe me, I invite you in. Nothing else is required from you. And if you come into relationship with me, we use language like inviting Jesus into our heart or praying an open prayer to say, God, forgive me for my sin and help me to live the way that you want me to live. Help me to treat you as the Lord and the leader of my life. There's all sorts of language. The essence of it is, do you depend upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins so you can be part of God's project of saving the world? Is that the way you live? Is that what you believe? Is that what you want to do with your life? Yes or no? For you, not for me, not for the group, for you. And when we come up to celebrate communion every week, what we're doing, for those of us who believe, is we are confessing over and over and over again. Not because we need to be forgiven, ultimately, over and over and over again, because God can forgive you for everything. But we come up and we confess and we say, I am God's child. I know that Jesus has defeated sin on the cross for me and for the world. I receive again my identity and the forgiveness that Jesus has given to me. And I walk back out into the world as an agent, as a participant, as somebody with a role to play in seeing God's kingdom come in everyday life. That is what the Christians do to respond to the problem of sin in the world. Let me invite the band to come up. I want to finish with this brief story. I'm stealing it from from J.D. It's his story, but I'm stealing it. A few weeks ago, um, we were talking about fear, and we were talking about courage. And we had a visitor in our church who was only here for the weekend, maybe only for 24 hours. And he came forward during the communion time that we're about to celebrate. And he took, I think he took the communion. I'm not totally sure if he took it or he skipped it. But he ended up talking to Pastor J.D. on the side. And he said said to Pastor J.D., I have been researching Christianity. I have been investigating it. I've been looking into it. I've been examining whether or not this is what I want to believe with my life. And what I need you, strange person I've just met at Mill City Church, what I need you to pray for me today is that I would have the courage to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior right now. Today's the day for me. And so J.D. led him, helped him pray a simple prayer that said, I accept that in my life. I want to be forgiven. I know that Jesus forgives me. I know that sin has no power over me. And I want to be part of what God's doing. And then as a good pastor, J.D. says, we have groups. I'll get you connected. We want to get you to know some people. He says, oh, no. I'm actually just here for 24 hours. I'm from Baltimore. And I, I don't, maybe JD knows, I don't even know how he got here. But God used that moment, this communion moment, to say, hey, today's the day for you to be able to say, this is what I believe. This is how I'm going to live my life. I know I don't completely understand it. I want to grow in my understanding of it. But this is what I'm going to stake my life on the unbelievable graciousness and kindness and love and forgiveness of God. And so maybe that's your day today too. And there are going to be people on the side 
over here that would love to pray for you, that would love to talk to you about your questions. Or maybe today's the day where you have been a Christian for a really long time and you just really need to make this meaningful to reassure you and remind you of who you are and what your life is about. And as you come forward and you receive the bread, which represents the broken body of Christ, and you receive the juice, which represents the blood of Christ shed for you, that your life has been ransomed because of what Jesus has done for you. That God's love is defined by Christ dying for you while you were still in your sin. And you can receive that forgiveness and know that God forgives you if you ask for it and if you want it. And you can ask somebody to pray for you as you enter back out into the world and play the role that God has in mind for you to play. That's good news. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And even though we don't completely understand it, we hear your invitation. We hear you inviting us into a loving, grace-based relationship where you extend your forgiveness and your hospitality and your welcome to each one of us and offer to make us whole, to heal us, to set us free from sin in our lives that we don't have to just continue to learn to live with it, God. That the wrong things can be made right in our lives and in this world. So God, speak to each one of us in our hearts, in in an inmost place where we can hear you as we come forward and receive the gift that you offer to us in Jesus Christ in communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sometimes when I read parts of scripture, I think, I wonder if Paul yelled this when he wrote it. Because oftentimes when he wrote, someone else was writing the things down for him. He was dictating. I wonder if he yelled this scripture when he wrote it because it seemed like that's how it should have been to me. It says this, Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Amen? God bless you all.